Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Mesh Tsunami podcast. This week, we were offering five conversations from episode four, our review of mosled epidemiology and disease burden with Zobir Yanasi, plus from the vault, an epidemiology discussion from back in 2022. Initially, this conversation focuses on cost effectiveness. I start off asking how economics of treating mesh stack up against hypercholesterolemia at the birth of statins in the 80s, when the medical benefit was clear, but the economic was harder to gauge or to accept. Zobir proceeds to describe the process by which cost effectiveness of drugs is measured, computation of quality adjusted life years, or qualities, and how different countries vary in the level of qualities they consider cost effective. He also notes that within the U.S., at least, we may be willing to accept five times greater cost per quality for some disease than the $50,000 standard for most others. He also points out that cost effectiveness grows as new therapeutic options induce price competition into a market. Louise Campbell shares the specific U.S. cost numbers from Zobrez's article, which she just terms frightening, particularly given the rate of growth in the disease and the society's lack of efficacy in shifting the curve on prevalence and progression. Zobair responds by saying that one goal of the article was to create awareness that regular surveillance of diabetic patients from Mazel could have a significant economic impact in the U.S. As the conversation winds down, Jorn Schottenberg comments that this is all a team effort, and Zobair hardly agrees. Zobair Yanasi has spent decades building a knowledge base that is a significant part of how the world looks at Mazel D patient dynamics and trends today. This discussion encapsulates some of that wisdom in the context of winter 2024. It intrigues while it educates. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join our dialogue in the LinkedIn discussion group. Roger Green. So Zobair, just follow up quickly on one small part of that. Going back a long, long time ago, I remember one of the discussions about aggressive treatment of hypercholesterolemia back in the 80s and 90s being that the number of patients that would benefit at a cost per patient up against what you'd have to spend to really eradicate the problem didn't make sense economically using the metrics people used at that point in time because the cost for every case that advanced to say to a cardiovascular event versus how many people you actually have to treat for cholesterol to get there, those numbers were more balanced. Here, my guess is that if you're talking about 1.8% of the population with mass cirrhosis, that the cost of treating those 1.8 million people is so um, exceptional on an annual basis that even if you had to surveil 100 million people together, the numbers would actually work out. Do I have that roughly right in my mind? Does the scale work that way? Zobar Yunasi. Well, yeah. I mean, I think what you need to do after establishing efficacy and effectiveness of any drug or any treatment regimen, you have to establish cost effectiveness. And cost effectiveness of the drug would be established based on value equation, which means that it is not only about outcome. We have surrogates of long-term outcome here. We use fibrosis and resolution of, of MASH as a surrogate of long-term mortality, liver-related mortality, but it's the cost of the drug and cost of the disease over the quality of those years that actually are added because of the use of the drug. So we use something called cost efficiency assessment or cost utility assessment where you take all of these things into consideration. Now I can tell you that when you look at say the analysis that was done by ICER in the United States for the two drugs that were uh, you know, out there, the resmitiron from Adrigal and then obeticolic acid that's not currently being considered for NASH, at least the ICER analysis and then 
subsequent analysis suggested that if the drug is priced well and the efficacy data that we're seeing currently is going to also be seen in, in the real-world setting, that this drug will be cost-effective. So from a society perspective, it's are you meeting, if you're using a drug, are you meeting what's called the willingness to pay threshold for that country? So the willingness to pay for this country is that in the United States, in general, 50000 for each additional quality adjusted life years is accepted as a cost-effectiveness. Now, that you have to remember that even in the United States, there are diseases that actually even much higher threshold has been accepted, $200,000 to $250,000 per quality, for example, for some cancers is acceptable. Now, that may not be the case in another country like in India or even in in UK, the thresholds are lower there. So when you're actually looking at the drug approval in terms of efficacy and safety, then at some point one has to do economic analysis and show that from a societal perspective that that is actually acceptable. Now, that's also different than sort of a budgetary perspective from a payer's perspective. So uh, everyone has to do their own modeling. And I think it will happen. If you remember in the old days of hepatitis C, it wasn't actually cost effective to treat patients with the drugs that we had. But as the efficacy increased, safety increased, and drug prices fell, it is no doubt that the treatment of hepatitis C patients are going to be cost effective. So we're sort of this first steps towards that goal. But I have no doubt that the, the that even with the drugs that are at the sort of verge of getting approved, that we will have cost effectiveness from a societal perspective. And then we have to convince our payers, which is much more complicated in the United States because there are so many different types of payers to convince them that for their population that they have in the, under their plants, that the drug will save lives, will save complications of cirrhosis that are quite costly or liver transplantation. So that has to be done. And, and it's something that all of us, including Yorn and others, are playing a part in. Louise Campbell. I was amazed by this piece of work and congratulations to both Azabir and Linda Henry, who I think was the co-author with you on this. And it makes frightening reading if you break it down into just its figures. And when Zabir was talking there about the cost, there's a section here that one of the studies that you use that NAFLD amongst patients with type 2 diabetes in the US could lead to 58, 5.8 billion 20-year cost 65,000 liver transplants, 1.37 million cardiovascular-related deaths, and 812,000 liver-related deaths. These are frightening figures, and we're nowhere near looking at how we're going to stop the Titanic from moving. We're not really spending the time in prevention, earlier diagnosis, earlier assessment for poor liver health before it leads some of these complications. So just picking through the document was fascinating. And from a patient's perspective, it's not just the patient who suffers, it's the quality of life of the person, the people around that patient um, trying to support them. The extra days they take off from work to support that patient. If I look at the Australian models, moving around the country to get fibre scan in limited areas, that takes an awful lot of resource. So I'm hoping that this sort of epidemiological data now really pushes the WHO to really focus on giving it NCD status because that will help focus it in low middle income countries where some of this is a real problem. So it's a great piece of work. It is frightening. It's not quite Halloween yet, but it's an early piece. It was startling. You're right. I mean, the purpose of that was for us is to just highlight the fact that the burden is important. So when you look at patients with diabetes, 
uh, no one will question their risk for eye disease, for retinopathy, or kidney disease, or cardiovascular disease. However, the liver disease has been and continues to be ignored. And I think that is really the point to make is that when you look at this group of patients, they can actually drive this important outcome that could be much more costly uh, from, from a societal perspective than even other complications of diabetes. And, and this is not to replace one complication with another complication or rank them, but just to raise awareness that when you're doing your annual check for, in, and there is even in primary care setting here, if a patient has diabetes, there is no doubt that you're going to be sent for a retinopathy check or eye check or get a creatinine assessment for a kidney check. But no one is really thinking about, well, maybe I should actually do a fiber scan or, a, or some sort of a test to see what the liver status is to the diabetic patient with that high number. And I think that's the point of this is to just make sure that we assess those patients who are at risk to see if they're con- considered, quote unquote, high risk MASH or high risk muscle D or not. And that, that that's done with the non-invasive tests and very easy to do. Even if you don't have a fiber scan, you certainly can do a FIP4, which is available by just simple blood tests and some demographic data. And I have to tell you that looking at some primary practices where I practice, you don't even have those labs done so that you can calculate the FIP4 by a lot of the uh, practices. So there's got to be a, a more awareness at even at that level. So we're hoping that all of us together can actually help stakeholders. And I think you're absolutely right. When we talk about indirect costs or intangible costs of this disease, we're not actually calculating the cost to the family and to others. And this is really the purpose of this, not is to not to scare people, but to actually raise the reality that this disease is going to become even more prominent if we don't deal with it now. Jaren Schattenberg. That's a very important point. And I think it, it's both towards, you know, the payers, the regulators, the colleagues, where you say the, the people that are responsible for implementing a FIP4 to be able to use it as suggested by the guidelines and actually refer patients, getting in the mindset to be ready. And I think the work that you and your team have been doing around the numbers really support that effort. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put those in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to me, questions at surfingmash.com. We'll be back next week to discuss what new information or product to expect in NIT space in 2024. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.